Even before humans developed metal tools, stonework, jewelry, and mineral wealth have been an integral part in human society. With the advent of the Industrial Revolution, with coal being exploited as a primary energy source for heating and locomotion, even more minerals, ranging from copper to iron to aluminum, became accessible on a scale never before seen. Now, with fossil fuels such as coal and oil becoming more difficult to source and pressure from environmental concerns causing a search for greener energy, a new frontier in mining for the green economy, ranging from lithium to cobalt, has opened, raising new challenges and opportunities in the never-ending search for wealth from beneath. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been time to hear it. The president of the United States Hello and welcome back to the myth of the 20th century. We're going to do a probably brief episode this evening. Um, myself and Hans are here to talk about some might regard as a spooky subject going deep into the earth, <laughs> digging out uh, treasures amongst the, uh, the ruins of eons of geological decay and history. We're going to talk about mining. And seeing as how this is coming up on the end of the October month, we, uh, we're going to do our best to make this as interesting and possibly spooky. Although I'll be the first to admit, I am not the most, uh, festive person by nature. So this is going to be, uh, for you guys. It is not for me. I think the last time I went out for uh, Halloween was over 10 years ago. So welcome Hans. Um, Let's Glad uh, to be here. Let's talk about digging stuff up. Um, I, I also wanted to just orient us towards why is this uh, even a topic. Um, I was telling Hans my personal interest in this subject came recently. It wasn't that I didn't have any interest at all, but it was primarily stoked recently by the whole electric vehicle craze that's been going on. And as such, the... The white papers are a flurry and the YouTubers are a busy on the internet getting everybody to talk about new technology and techniques and the green revolution. And eventually that works its way towards Washington and Wall Street and people uh, people try to make their fortune and um, make, uh, make their careers, uh, I guess, respectively out of all that. So the Green New Deal is uh, AOC's attempt to cash in whatever the term would be for politics. And then a lot of the, um, the miners and the uh, Tesla stocks and stuff like that have obviously been pretty big over the past couple of years. Although recently there's been a little bit of a cloud of doubt that I think has filled up some of the sky about the 
realization abilities of all these dreams. We can maybe talk about that. But the the glaring and headline statistic that I think caught my attention and caught a lot of people's notice about what does it actually mean to take all of the, let's just say there's 10 billion cars in the world. I actually don't know what that number is exactly, but that's how many people there are. Um, what does it mean to convert that to a battery powered system versus a gasoline slash diesel powered fleet? Um, turns out it's a lot of work and not only is the engineering a challenge and the manufacturing a challenge of all the vehicles and then figuring out what you're going to do with all the, the old ones. And then also, um, figuring out a charging infrastructure that stuff. I think most people know about at least cursorily what's behind or upstream the supply chain as it were. Uh, but what's behind all that is the mining because those batteries which are by far the most expensive component of an electric vehicle are expensive and they're sourced from various elements and molecules and uh, combinations of chemistry to actually make all that stuff work. So the, the lithium ion chemistry is what most people are at this point, I think pretty well versed in, in terms of that's like, that's the, the element that people focus on lithium primarily but that's just the, I forget which one it is. Uh, people correct me if they want, but it's, it's one of the anodes or the cathodes. The other one is where the chemistry varies. And they have um, cobalt in there, nickel in there, iron in some of them. And I probably am not going to bore everybody by going through the details of that, primarily because I am not as versed in how they all work well enough to walk you down my pontifications, but I do know that those combinations make up different battery chemistries. And I do know that the, the Tesla, when it first sort of became a consumer version, I think it was the model S after the roadster, the roadster was really just the, the first iteration where rich people, very rich people were, were spending a quarter million dollars for an electric vehicle. The, the more mass market version, I believe was the model S and that one, it uses a lithium nickel cobalt chemistry and those three well nickel maybe being the exception but the the lithium and the cobalt elements are particularly difficult to source and it doesn't mean that lithium isn't plentiful it's actually um it's a salt and it's not that difficult necessarily to process that but it it's concentrated or diluted depending on where you are geographically and it's not cheap to get. So there are certain places in the world that have the right mixture of geology basically to make it possible. Places like Chile, Chile is just kind of the, the biggest, uh, maybe in addition to Australia beneficiaries of this whole, um, electrification stuff, because not only does Chile have lithium, it has copper. It's one of the biggest, uh, biggest copper countries in the world. And so, you know, it, it's kind of random. It's sort of like how oil works. Uh, you either got lucky or you didn't. And, and it's not distributed evenly throughout the world. But cobalt, I think, is the other one that people have been super familiar with in the news, at least, or reading articles um, 
because that one is highly concentrated in the quote unquote democratic Republic of Congo in Western Africa, central Western Africa, right on the equator, I think. And as you might imagine, uh, Africa or that particular country in Africa is not very rich. And so the way they mine it, there's a euphemism called artisanal mining. And it basically means that it's not done on a very industrial, um, it's not very efficient. Okay. Let's just make it simple. And an industrial process usually involves a lot of heavy machinery, uh, some pretty heavy duty planning involved. There's processing facilities, there's conveyor belts, there's large teams of trained, skilled people who go in. There's geologists involved, you know, making sure that you're going in the right direction rather than just digging randomly. Uh, there's usually a lot of sophisticated software and uh, underground sonar equipment to try to suss out where these formations are in the earth rather than having to, again, just dig and dig and dig until you finally pull it up. But uh, by contrast, artisanal mines are basically people just prospecting like they did you know, in the 1800s in the U.S. or something looking for gold. It's, it's very primitive, and they, they go out there on these huge teams of uh, shovel and pick-wielding um, laborers and they're they're just they're picking away and you know however it actually happens um if you've seen movies like blood diamond you can sort of picture that there's these teams of uh, soldiers watching sometimes young children actually digging through the muck trying to pull up whatever they're they're trying to source and it's it's not automated very well it's not industrialized at all uh, and so the, the labor conditions are quite brutal and so people have, have said the cobalt sourcing is um, a very questionable human human rights issue, and so that that one has been under pressure. And the um, long and short of it, and I, the reason I brought all this long story was up was if you're actually going to electrify everything, you would actually have to imagine what we just talked about with cobalt. You'd have to multiply the the scale and, and scope of mining by five times for a lot of these particular key minerals. So lithium, copper, I think aluminum is in there, cobalt, and maybe nickel. Uh, and, and there's probably a couple I forgot. But the, the magnification factor is just enormous. And not only do we have human rights issues in certain places, but we don't even like allow mining to happen anymore by and large compared to the way we used to in the developed world. So it ends up going to less wealthy countries like Congo and there are exceptions places like Canada and Australia and Chile where mining is the industry or one of the biggest industries where it's more accepted. But the United States, for example, hasn't really had a culture recently for the past probably 30 years of opening new mines, like the rare earth metals, for example, that's a big one that, we shut down and so go ahead. go ahead yeah so i would say the united states is actually sort of um bucking the trend of a lot of uh, first world countries in terms of mining <clears throat> uh, and you're right to bring up canada and australia uh, canada is is in particular a major mining uh you know conglomerate i think the whole country basically exists to extract minerals but uh, the United States does pretty well. So there is a – every year the U.S. Geological Survey, um, which belongs to the Department of the Interior, puts out what's called the Mineral Commodities Summary. 
And there's some other reports that come out from the government every year. They're actually pretty interesting. They go into like the critical metals portfolio, which documents imports and exports of pretty much every kind of metallic substance you can think of. You know, where the United States uh, has its strategic interests, how much it produces, how much it needs, so forth. So they, in the estimated value in 2022 of what they call non-fuel mineral commodities in the U.S. economy um, uh, was something, uh, according to them, in 2022, the estimated total value of non-fuel mineral production in the United States was $98.2 billion dollars an increase of 4% from the revised total of uh, $94.6 billion in 2021. So it's actually going up year over year currently. And a lot of that has to do with the fact the United States is currently um, trying to reindustrialize. Um, I, I think it fits and starts, and uh, not very successfully, but it is making strides towards reindustrialization. Um, and there's a huge export business. You know, they domestically mined uh, mineral raw materials that would include copper ore, iron ore, sand and gravel, stone, things like that, gold, uh, soda ash, zinc concentrates, aluminum, all this uh, is met, you know, is numbering in the almost $100 billion range. Um, and a lot of that is exported um, to other countries. And uh, the United States does import a fair amount. But this is a, a big business for America. It's not as if we've given up our minds like uh, like a lot of Europeans have. Um, uh, there are some that have actually incre- you know, seen a lot of reduced production, um, and they kind of cite why. So increases in production of non-fuel mineral commodities and increases in prices of some industrial minerals and minerals used to make batteries – contributed to the total value of non-fuel mineral production increasing in 2022. For the metals sector, there was a reduced production for several metals owing to reduced ore grades and weather-related issues. Gold, iron ore, magnesium metal, palladium, platinum, silver, and titanium had some of the largest percentage decreases in production value. For the industrial mineral sector, increased construction materials for energy and infrastructure projects as well as manufacturing sectors led to increased production value. The largest increases in production value were barite, bromine, feldspar, helium, iodine, lithium, potash, pump, pumice, and sand and gravel for industrial purposes. So the United States is sort of slowly giving away uh, a lot of the key minerals, gold, iron ore, magnesium, palladium, platinum, silver, and uh, titanium. And we're sort of reorganizing around uh, specific types of metals for battery and electric, uh, electric vehicle production, as well as some infrastructure concerns. That's basically where the United States mining sector is heading. Um, in terms of you know, the copper sector in the United States, it's been struggling for a long time, and this kind of ties into maybe what you're talking about, which is um, the massive need for the electric revolution um, it's just going unmet. So the regulatory approval for copper mines in the United States is at like a 10-year low. You know, we are just not approving new copper mines. Well, I've heard it takes an average of 10 years to actually to get approved yeah. versus other countries right. where it's a couple years. Um, yeah. I mean, it, we, it basically is impossible to get a copper mine going in the United States. 
the, just, the biggest one difficult. that yeah. I'm aware of, it might even be the biggest in the world, is actually in, in Utah. It's called the Bingham, Bingham Mine, and it's an old mine. It's It's been going for a long time. It's just a giant hole in the ground, but uh, it's close to Salt Lake City. And so if you can imagine, there was a point where people favored this type of activity because, frankly, it just gave people jobs. But as sort of the in- industry in the country as a whole has sort of given away to service oriented economy mm-hmm. crap. Um, I think people are less sensitive to having these types of things not even happen at all or get shut down. I certainly know from personal experience, certain communities that I'm familiar with are out and out fighting opening of mines. And mm-hmm. so if this thing is so big and it's the biggest in the world, if, if I'm not mistaken, um, it's run by the Kennecott Utah Copper Corporation, Bingham Mine. It's right outside, outside of Salt Lake. And so that must have been open a long time ago because imagine opening up a big mine next to New York City. It's it just no way, absolutely no way people would put up with that. So, and, and just while we're on the subject of geography in the United States, um, the West remains probably the one truly receptive place for this type of activity, frankly, because the the lack of population density and the Rocky mountains also are pretty inhospitable to begin with. And so you're not going to find many people necessarily wanting to set up shop there for living. Uh, there probably are people still arguing against mining places like this because they want to go camping or something. But the, um, the contrast between the vast expanse of the Rocky mountain range, that includes, by the way, New Mexico and Arizona. It's not just the the forested regions of the Northern parts of it, but that, that range, it even goes into Mexico. um, That range has a lot of minerals and because of the low population density and um, just accessibility and the more uh, less, uh, less vegetated areas, it is still a pretty active mining region. So Colorado uh, has has actually a pretty famous school called the Colorado School of Mines. Um, and I, I knew a guy actually who, uh, who worked out there on a project. And I would say in addition to that, um, that's number one, but in, in addition to that, there are a few areas that still are, are mined in the U.S. Uh, and that obviously includes Appalachia, Appalachia, with the coal reserves, which are slowly dying. Uh, and then if you count the mineral extraction, well, if you, if you count oil as basically a mineral, uh, Texas is obviously humongous and Oklahoma and places like that. Um, in addition to that, Wyoming, which is sort of on the Rocky range. Uh, and then the Dakotas are included in this sort of oil sands as Canadians are, by the way, uh, that, that range, contains a lot of uh, oil wealth, uh, and some other minerals. And then I guess, lastly, there is some activity in the South, uh, places like Louisiana, Arkansas, that's home to companies like, uh, Albemarle, which is a huge lithium producer. Uh, I think it's the biggest in the world. If you're not counting the state run ones, like the one in Chile, uh, and they had some agreements mm-hmm. with the Chilean government, which actually were under threat of nationalization recently. So, um, it's, it's, you get into geopolitics pretty quickly when you're, you're dealing with these key minerals. Um, and then rare earth minerals are also really, really sensitive. And it's not even to say that they're, 
all that rare. It's just that they, I forget what it is. It's, it's something to do with the periodic table and where they are, but um, you can find them, but they're, they're spread out all over the place. And I think the biggest reserve actually was in California, the mountain pass mine. And it's, uh, it's got a reserve of neodymium. It's basically this, um, this specialty, I think it's an element. I can't remember if it's a molecule, but it's, it's something on the chemistry, uh, chemist list for making magnets, uh, mm-hmm. function permanently. So if you want to make a permanent magnet, you don't need to run an electric current through it to magnetize a piece of iron or metal or something like that. And that's an electromagnet that you can, you can charge up and actually your, your car's, um, alternator, I think uses an electromagnet. Yeah. I've actually worked on them. You have to, you have to charge up the, the coils first before it actually will generate a charge. So you have to have a source of power to even get a, you know, anything out of it. So it's yeah. kind of a weird I system, mean, but the permanent the, magnets the old, are used in electric adage, vehicles because they have electric the old motors. Adage. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, it's just as also part of the electrification, in addition to the batteries, one of the big things, in addition, obviously, to the, the, the wiring, which is pretty straightforward, you need a bunch of copper or aluminum. But in addition to the batteries, you need magnets in electromotors. And you don't necessarily have to make them permanent magnets like this neodymium lets you do, but you you have to have some form of magnet. Neither it's going to be permanent or electric. And the electric ones are cheaper, but they're not as strong. And so Tesla uses, I think, both but they're trying to get rid of the permanent magnets because it is there's a supply chain issue because China actually produces the majority of this stuff and they don't necessarily source it, but they process it and it's very dirty. And that's actually one of the reasons why it got shut down in the United States and the sourcing of it is not even that big of a deal, but it's, it's the processing of it. So this MP mountain pass mine has been gone through so many different hands, but it's, it's currently running and they're opening up, I think another one in Texas under uh, the defense department that is actually trying to initiate this because of national security concerns. Um, because it, it is at the moment, rare earths are predominant, pre- predominantly controlled and produced and processed by the Chinese. Again, not to say that they're sourcing them from the ground in China, but they're actually taking them to China and then doing all the chemical processing to actually get them ready for manufacturing but go ahead yeah i mean the old adage with you know finding minerals isn't that there's a real shortage of them it's actually getting to them in a lot of these remote locations these like remote mountain passes are uh you know it's almost impossible to get to many of them not to mention the environmental regulations and you know the environmental damage you actually do undertake Building the infrastructure to move that copper out, effect you know safely, efficiently, in a, in a you know cost-saving way is extreme. You have to build roads. You have to build sewage. You have to build water lines. You have to build electric infrastructure. Like it's not easy to build new mines, particularly with modern mining. You're not, you don't have like a slave labor crew that you, you know, transmogrify into dwarves and you just send them underground and you work them till they're dead. Like it doesn't, that doesn't work anymore. The mining technology we have now is so massive. Uh, a lot of it is for safety concerns. And, you know, 
we're not just sending guys in with little hydraulic machines anymore with no ear protection and, you know, just like a pair of plastic over their eyes to protect them. That that's just not what's happening. So it's immensely difficult to actually get like mining to happen in a country like the United States, despite how much there is. Yeah, I, I don't think it, it's, it's a technical just, obstacle. I think it's a, it's a societal obstacle. obstacle. Yes, it's a cultural yes, and, yeah. and regulatory obstacle. Um, well, technically, it's it's easier than ever because we have you know yeah. modern equipment, but it's well, it's just hard. Let's focus on let's focus on copper here for a minute because it's an interesting yeah. subject. So the United States um, has been mining copper since the early days of like the, of the American Republic uh, and since the colonial period even. Um, Copper mining in North America goes back to, I mean, prehistory from what they can tell. At a time when you could literally just walk on the ground in areas around the Great Lakes and just find big chunks of copper just, you know, poking out of the ground. You could just pick them up. It wasn't exactly like some kind of complex mining process going on there. So they were found all over Michigan, parts of Minnesota, parts of Wisconsin, down into Ohio. You could find copper. So the United States was exploiting this very early, but the key region where America finds most of its copper, as you mentioned, is in the West. It's in the Western United States. It's in the Southwest. So if you look at, for example, um, you know, where are the major operating copper mines in the United States today? Uh, it's really four states, Arizona, Utah, New Mexico, Nevada. And the majority of them are in Arizona. Uh, there's basically one Utah, it's operated by Rio Tinto. There's one in New Mexico, which is operated by Freeport. And then there's, uh, really just one in Nevada, which is, uh, some kind of Polish company, uh, that owns the mine technically. The other ones are basically just in Arizona. They're entirely in Arizona. Uh, the United States is, uh, Massive copper producer just produces an insane amount of copper, one of the biggest in the world, top five exporters of copper, um, and has I think the sixth largest reserves that they know of, something like fifty million metric tons of copper. Yeah, so it's number number three in reserves. Yeah. Uh, Chile and Indonesia are, are number one and two respectively. I think U.S. is number three. Right. I mean, Arizona really is, you know, the copper state. I mean, we still get a lot of copper from Michigan. We get a little bit from Montana. We get a little bit from Missouri. But those aren't, like, major copper mines. You know, those are small-time copper mines or they're, they're mixed-use mines or they find a variety of materials. The major dedicated copper mines are really in Arizona. And that's where a lot of the bigger projects are actually coming up. So there's been this back and forth for years, years, with uh, almost 10 years now. Actually, I might even go back further than that with Rio Tinto for a proposed copper mine in Arizona, um, the Resolution Copper Mine. And I think I've mentioned, I've talked about this one before. Um, it's been undergoing like regula environmental regulatory approval for 10 years now. So I think the planning for the mine probably goes back to probably, you know, closer to the early aughts. Um, this thing has been held up in court dozens of times for a litany of reasons. Now the Amerindians have found a way to hold it up in court and the U S forest service is, is kind of working to block it. But potentially 
this could be a mine that could supply 25%, 25% of the American copper demand alone for decades. This one mine that's taking into account future growth projections. It that's, could produce that much. That's huge. What's the holdup? Environmental concerns, political concerns. It seems to be a gigantic uh, nexus and black hole of political bickering around mm -hmm. this mine. Now, there's probably some good intentions behind holding it up. Um, the environmental concerns are probably valid. Copper mining is pretty rough. Um, it will destroy the environment. A big mine like this will absolutely ruin the environment nearby. I don't think that's disputed. Um, as usual, the Amerindians are being used probably as a proxy by environmental groups in the United States. So environmental groups in the United States have realized they've become very unpopular. Um, you know, they've led a lot of unpopular charges over the decades. Now they're regarded as a joke. Um, and, and many people sort of don't like them because they see them as having contributed to the downfall of American industry and the ruining of coal towns and company towns and so forth. So they're attacked. I mean, now you can't even get to work because they're sitting in the middle of the highway. Right. I mean, you know, now they, they've, they've resorted to really using um, Amerindians as sort of proxy forces. So this is a big deal during that Keystone Pipeline debate. Remember when the, the engines sort of had their little chimp out and they tried oh, yeah. to disrupt it? That whole thing was funded by big money. There's a lot of big money behind specifically why they don't want pipelines. Now, there's there's all, there's all the old arguments about really it's Warren Buffett because he wants the trains to continue to, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. the rail lines to continue to have that business. There's some other interests that are involved that don't necessarily want pipelines. They want trucking, whatever. But there is big money behind this. There's a lot of NGOs behind this. Um, and they've been holding up this Rio Tinto mine. I think there's another concern that uh, this is a foreign company. Um, Rio Tinto is a British company um, with foreign owners. Um, you know, so we're giving away a massive amount of the American copper reserve to a foreign company. I think that there is there there is a good intention behind being wary and suspicious of that. Why do we not have an American company that's going in there and doing this? What happened to the American mining sector? where it can figure out how to develop these projects. I think that that's also a valid concern. But this kind of goes to show that there is a tremendous amount of mining potential in the United States. But really, it's regulatory approval that's the holdup. It's not a technological problem. It's not even really a matter of political will. It's regulatory. It's bureaucratic. And there seems to be competing interests often involved behind the scenes of any major commodity fights about who gets to do what. Um, it could be that really behind the scenes there is an American company that's trying to get this contract. They don't want Rio Tinto to have it. Maybe that'll reveal itself in time. But at any level, copper mining is a, is a big part of the United States. It's been a huge part of America for um, uh, 200 years. And as the United States kind of moved west, it sort of began obviously sending a lot of that copper back to its industrial heartland in the eastern seaboard.
So there's a huge, <clears throat> there was a brass mill industry in uh, the Naugatuck Valley in Connecticut for a long time. And this is back in the days when Connecticut was, believe it or not, the industrial center of America uh, outside of Boston. It was literally the place to go for is industry. Is that where like Winchester or Remington or one, one yes, of those old? Yes, uh, it was where the old, the, the first arms manufacturers were all in Connecticut. That's correct. We talked about this in our machine tool episode. That was where American industry got its start was in arms manufacturing. And it was interchangeable yeah. parts. <laughs> I yes. remember that from like drop, third grade or something. Drop, drop dead in the state of Connecticut, along with some work in Rhode Island and Massachusetts. It was Connecticut. Um, but America was basically moving all this tremendous mineral wealth as it moved west, as it sort of slowly moved into the Great Lakes and to the Midwest and then moved further west huge chunks of that copper were just being shipped domestically back east. And what did we do with it? Well, the United States basically developed the modern electrical wire industry in the 19th century. I mean, really envisioned the future of electrical wiring in Connecticut. Um, we had these huge electrical wire mills. I mean, massive, massive mills all across the state of Connecticut that were used in everything. Um, and all of the old iron wires were being slowly stripped out and replaced with copper because it was just so much more efficient. If anyone wants to actually see an example of one of these wire factories, there's um, it's kind of a dumb movie, but it, it's uh, it's got Danny DeVito in it from like 1990, and it's called Other People's Money. And he plays... Um, somewhat uh, dubiously a corporate raider who is targeting a, I think it was probably Connecticut based uh, old new England type manufacturing company. And they actually made wire. And so you get to see the innards of how one of these things works. I saw it recently. So that, that just came to mind. Yeah. So the future of American copper and, and I should I should say that that company was under extreme duress and that's why it was being targeted. So I think we we shouldn't exclude the fact that this industry is somewhat gone now. But mm -hmm. the the origins of it were yes, as Hans points out in that part of the uh, the country, New England. Yes. Well, we still make a good amount of electrical wire and electrical equipment here in this country. It's just not made in New England. Well, I, I was doing some construction, and, and my, my wire came from the south. It was like yeah. Southern Wire Company or something like that. Yeah, yeah. and the, the majority of the um, the bulk-heavy uh, manufacturing industry, if it's left in the United States, is moved to the south. Kentucky, Tennessee, Carolinas, Georgia, um Alabama, you'll find a lot of that industry there now. Labor costs are cheap. Land is cheap. That's actually the big one. Taxes and are low. They're pretty um, anti-union. They call it a right to work. Extremely anti-union. You know, actually, it's interesting. The University of Alabama has one of the top metallurgical engineering major programs in the country, believe it or not. Um so that is a state that is, that is actually... Is that Auburn or what What? Uh, what school is that? I don't remember which one. I think it is just the University of Alabama, like like the state university. I could be wrong. 
But Alabama has actually sort of been slowly reimagining itself as a heavy industry state and has been shifting its educational programs to do so. The same way that Arizona is attempting currently to shift its educational programs towards chip fabs and computer science and computer engineering in anticipation of some kind of massive investment in chip fabrication facilities in the state. Um, yeah, might, might be yeah. coming from the U.S. side. Taiwan has been dragging its feet pretty reluctantly trying to get the thing not finished. I think they were forced into building their fab in Phoenix. It's funny to read Morris Chang complain about American workers sucking. <laughs> He's basically Whatever. saying that it'll Whatever. never happen. America, America can't make it happen. Um, I think that he doesn't. T- I don't TSMC think he wants it to happen. TSMC was literally stolen technology from TI. So these guys can complain about America all they want. They haven't had a real idea in their whole lives <laughs> at any level. Um, you know, the future of the, of the copper mining in this country unsurprisingly, is going to be mostly in Arizona. And it's not even just the resolution copper mine I was just talking about. There's several other big projects that are being planned for Arizona. So Arizona is rapidly becoming sort of our mini Canada in terms of copper mining. You know, we are pouring money into extracting copper out of there. And what for? Well, as we were talking about earlier, the United States is currently embarking on a energy transition platform and a revitalization of infrastructure around that general platform. I don't really think it's going to work very well. I think it's going to be a disaster, to be honest. But they're certainly spending the money to do it. They're not, they're not half-assing it. They're actually trying to do this very rapidly. Um, I think that that resolution copper mine project will get approved, particularly because copper prices keep going up. And there's a real reluctance now to import copper. You know, there's a real question of why is the United States importing copper if we're embarking on this electrification initiative? There's, as we just said, 50 million metric tons of copper in this country that we know about. The number of copper discoveries has actually gone up hundreds of percentage points over the last like 80 years or since World War II. Well, I, I don't have keep, the number that I'm looking for, but, but what I wanted to say was when we give out absolute figures like that, I, I think it's hard for, well, it's hard for me at least to understand what that translates into. So I think a, a better metric, and again, I'm not saying I have that metric in front of me. I wish I did, but what I think we need to use to normalize the analysis on this is annual years of use. How many years of that do we have in, in the ground? And for uranium, for example, at current consumption levels, we have about 200 years worth of uranium. In terms of copper, I don't know what that is. I would imagine there's probably enough to get what we need done. It's just going to get more and more expensive. And I do remember we talked about this, I don't know, several months ago, probably more. And the the ore grades are declining in terms of what we're pulling out of the ground now. So in other words, there, there's a lot of junk that you have to sift away and through various processes, chemical, mechanical, otherwise, to get to actually what the element that you're looking for. So copper, for example, I think the yield in copper, it used to be as, as rich as like 40% of the ore 
was actually pure copper. Now it's down to like 5% in some of these, these mines. And so when you're talking about 50 million tons, I don't know if that's good. It's probably, it's probably, you know, good, but think about how massive the electrical grid is. It's the largest machine in the world, the U S electrical grid, if the Chinese haven't passed us already, but it, at one point it was, and that's a lot of weight. I mean, think of all the wiring. Have you ever picked up a steel cable? I mean, it's heavy. So that the steel or aluminum or whatever the heck they use for, for running um, electri- electri- electrical current across transmission lines, that's, that's probably aluminum. But if you go into your house, traditionally that's copper. And think of all the millions of houses there are. So there, there's, there's a lot of millions of tonnage right there. So I don't know how much that, that translates into. So, but if, if, if you're going to do this analysis just speaking broadly to anyone curious about the subject, I think you have to think in terms of, okay, how many years of consumption do I get out of whatever, you know, amount is in the ground? I think right. that's helpful. Sure. Sure. I don't have that specific in front of me right now. The actual, I, I should have gotten that ahead of time. The copper consumption is tapped. Um, what I do know is that the current copper shortages they're projecting have nothing to do with potential capacity. It has entirely to do with current capacity, which is the realistic, right, right. possible, refine, you know, 100% refinement that you can attain any given year. So the shortages that are being spoken of relate to that. It's not as if we're going to run out of copper on the planet. Like, there's a lot of copper, guys. That There's an insane amount of copper everywhere you go. It's not all in Chile. I don't really, I'm not too worried about that. What I am worried about is the idea that eventually that copper is going to become more expensive to ascertain for a variety of reasons. And you can recycle, by the way. So we're we're not like we're we're burning it like oil. You can, yes, you can reuse copper. But it loses its conductivity over time. It loses its strength. Eventually it does break down. It becomes useless. It can develop little, um, what are they called, sort of these almost microscopic indentations and holes within the copper surface yeah. that make it more difficult to utilize for Pitting. pipes. Yeah, so there, there's a lot of problems with reusing copper over time. A lot I, would, of I would imagine if once you melt it down, though, it, it's usable again. Yeah. I mean, like lead, lead batteries, for example, have to eventually be reprocessed. And it's not so much that the lead itself deteriorates, it's just it, in the battery it, it gets sulfated because it's a lead sulfuric acid battery and if you don't keep it at a high level of charge the um, the sulfur starts bonding with the surface of the lead and so all they do when you turn in your old battery at the auto zone is that they just send it back to a smelter and they melt it and then the sulfur separates from the copper and they probably skim off the top the stuff they don't want and then what's left and th- this is by the way how you process ore you 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 melt it chemically process it, you mechanically separate it, you put them into these like slurry ponds. And that, that's one of the reasons mines are so environmentally hazardous is that they, they take a lot of inputs and processes to extract out the pure form of the mineral, whether it's gold or copper or aluminum, there's a lot of stuff that's stuck to it because the, the environment doesn't care about what we need. It just does what is chemically most convenient. And so things, you know, like oxygen basically bonds to everything, rusts up, you know, all the 
all the steel or iron in the ground, I should say. And then to get iron out of it, you have to, you have to basically melt off. It's not melting. It's basically you're burning off the oxygen and connecting it with carbon. So you, you have this heavy emission of CO2 basically, but then you get pure iron and that happens with, uh, copper i mean you it oxidizes basically you see that green tarnishing on it i think the the face they cut off of robert e lee was a green <laughs> a green statue face and that was not the original design i think it was like a copper bronze at least statue mm-hmm. but it it tarnishes over time and that's that's just corrosion that's basically the environment reacting with the pure element so whenever you're mining you're you're typically pulling out these stable molecules that are synthesized from the underlying elements in the environment reacting together and then they stabilize to the point where there's no more reactions uranium is the same thing and they have to you know reprocess that so i mean one of the big uh staying on the subject of copper here one of the big chemicals used in refining copper uh i'm sorry not refining copper but actually um leaching copper from oxide or uh is sulfuric acid yeah they call that in in situ mining so instead of yeah. digging stuff out they drill holes and they pump a bunch of chemicals down the flotation and they let it kind of float up yeah i guess so i don't know exactly how it, how it gets to the surface but it's basically it's extracting from the mineral body the stuff yeah. you want through a chemical reaction and then it's a liquid and so you can kind of pump it right as opposed mm-hmm. to digging it yeah you don't have to be a genius to know that sulfuric acid probably isn't something you want in the groundwater i mean you know just realistically speaking here so this isn't the, the, there are no free lunches this is a as i was saying earlier this is potentially an environmentally catastrophic thing it could be very bad to do a big copper mine it's just that's just the reality of it this is why, by the way, Chile is like the preferred in Brazil, in Mexico, and countries like this are the preferred sources of copper. These host governments don't care. They really, they mean, they really don't. Um, the locals don't really care. Not really. I mean, to some extent, maybe, but not really. They just want the job. So there is no free lunch. There are safe. I'm not safe. Well, it's safe and, you know, more environmentally, I guess, less environmentally destructive ways to do it. Um, but there's no free lunch. Also, copper refining and any any process used with actually forming copper is a very energy-intensive process. So this is tremendously challenging. Mining copper is one problem. Actually putting it to use for an industrial purpose is an entirely different problem. And the biggest issue is energy consumption. It's probably the number one cost. And lots of land that you can have. So you can have space between you and you know homes or something in case the refinery blows up. Like This is a very real risk. I have a couple of uh, notes I wanted to make about energy and the intersection between energy the civilization and, and mining. Um, so I did, um, a little bit of digging on Mark P Mills, uh, and his white papers. And he's written, I think books and definitely done podcasts where I first became familiar with him. 
uh, he, he's a pretty well-known and regarded uh, physicist. He actually used to do um, actual physics back in the day. Now what he does is more like the combination of economics and, and maybe applied physics. But he worked at Bell Labs, if I'm not mistaken, and he's um, he's he's been on the podcast circuit for a few years now, and uh, he gets brought in to be a speaker. And th- his main claim to fame is his sort of background qualifies him to analyze and perhaps be a legitimate critic of the green energy revolution. And so he's written a lot about what it's actually going to take to implement all these 2035 goals and uh, the the squad and and whatnot are are pushing out without actually understanding the details. And he basically says that we just don't have the capability to do this on the timescales that they're pushing. Uh, just full stop physics. The physics do- doesn't allow it. And so he, he cites some pretty good numbers. Um, one of the biggest ones, I think, and I think this is actually from a guy named Art Berman. Um, but regardless, uh, Mills kind of cites similar information. But the, the first, I think, key statistic or, or number that I think people need to understand is that there's a, a very strong correlation between wealth and energy usage. Uh, so wealth as measured at least by per capita wealth. Uh, so how much wealth is in a country per person and then how much energy is used in that country per person. And it's, it's, if you look at the Pearson coalition correlation coefficient on a chart, you have a scatter plot and then you have these two axes, energy and wealth, um, per capita. It's basically like a, it's a straight line. Uh, and so you would have a very strong correlation coefficient of like one as a perfect correlation, but it's, it's about like 0.9, 0.95. It's very, very strong. So there's a very strong relationship between how much energy a country uses and how much wealth it has. Okay. So now obviously the developed world is out on the leading end of it, developing, applying their wealthy, but also it, by this statistic, it implies and is proven that they use a lot of energy. Now, there's a whole lot of other energy uh, or uh, countries out there that don't have a lot of wealth and also don't use a lot of energy. If they want to even approach what we're doing, like China has, the impact on the consumption of all the stuff that you need to build a, a modern developed country is going to be impacted and it's going to increase the amount of materials and energy that is being used, like China. So do you remember back when the Chinese got admitted into the World Trade Organization? Hans, I don't know if you remember that, but I do. And it was the beginning of a huge commodity boom. Boom in the sense that all the countries that had commodities, Brazil, Russia, South Africa even, had an enormous customer, Australia, I should say, also. Uh, And the boom that happened really didn't slow down until recently, probably with the slowdown of China. But India is going to probably continue that trend. uh, And Africa, if they ever develop, is going to do that too. South America is sort of in the middle. But if they continue apace, there's going to be more demand on this stuff. And Southeast Asia, there's a lot of countries left that haven't done this. And that's not even talking about transitioning to a new economy based on electric power, 
which is somehow coming from green energy sources, not including nuclear. But just looking at the old technology, if all these countries catch up, there's going to be a huge demand put on the minerals of the world, much more so than we've, we've ever seen. And just like with China, there was a huge demand. There's going to be even more of that. So that's one of his first points. So now then you add in electrification and talking about multiplying the demands in copper and lithium, et cetera, by five. I mean, we're talking a, an enormous crunch and supply chain issue when it comes to mining. So that's one of his big points. But he also points out that there's, there's something missing in this equation because in order to mine this stuff and in order to actually run our economies, you need fossil fuels. You need things like gasoline and diesel, especially for industrial processes. And if you're going to talk about using batteries to run your giant mining truck or something, believe it or not, there are companies like Volvo and Caterpillar. They're actually working on those things, but they're not ready. And we don't have enough lithium to actually make the batteries for them. And you need the trucks to actually mine the stuff to begin with. And so there, there's a sort of a chicken and egg problem right now. So you're, you're going to be stuck with diesel no matter what you, you do, even if you don't like it, because you're not going to be able to mine it out of the ground unless you're running these trucks on diesel. And, and diesel is great because it has a really high energy density. If you compare that to a lithium uh, battery pack, uh, battery packs are heavy. They're, and it, density is usually measured by uh, how much weight per volume, right? But it's, um, you, you would need a battery pack, probably the size of the truck or more to actually run the dumb thing as long as you do with a small tank of diesel. So we just have a huge engineering problem when it comes to actually implementing the energy demands with green energy. So he talks about that stuff. Um, there was a, I'll put this in the slideshow, but there's, there's a couple of cool charts that, that shows just how impactful fossil fuels were. And you have to kind of intuit this. It's not like spelled out necessarily in his analysis, but this is how, how, what I take away from this chart. It's basically a chart over time of human civilization back going back about 700 years. And it shows the amount of energy spent, or I should say the amount of uh, uh, a civilization's wealth. And these are kind of estimates, you know, mind you, but I think it's, it's roughly plausible to sort of think about it this way. This is the amount of wealth a society had to spend on basically just surviving. So obviously you need food, uh, you need uh, animal food as well. Back when we didn't have vehicles and machinery, you had to feed your animals to do work for you and to eat. And then you had uh, heating uh, as well. So wood was predominantly the, the fuel for that. But then in terms of you know collecting firewood, collecting um, agricultural you know produce for yourself, and then also having pasture land or giving animal feed to your animals. 700 years ago, on average, according to this chart, uh, it took approximately 70 to 80% of the entire wealth of the country just to survive. So whatever you had left over 
was really what you could put into works of art, uh, building churches, cathedrals, things that were, you know, for future generations, sort of a, a gift to your, your heirs. But the rest of it, you're just, you're just, you know, eking your way, you're, you're scratching your way uh, through life. And it was very hard. And that happened for a long time until about the Industrial Revolution, when the discovery of, well, coal was a known thing. I mean, they used to smelt iron with it, but it wasn't used on the scale at which it, it, it became used in the Industrial Revolution. And it wasn't capitalized in a very efficient way because you have to dig it out of the ground. Talk about mining. Mining really, I prob- arguably, was um, really spurred on by the Industrial Revolution in a search for coal. Prior to that, you had huge armies of slaves sort of digging away at places like, uh, what do they call Spain back in the Roman Empire? There, there's huge copper mines actually back going back to the Roman days that the Romans had uh, slaves digging out of the ground. But it was not industrialized. It was extremely inefficient, and it depended on you know huge amounts of conquest to get human labor to do this for you. And so it was inefficient. Um, it really was the energy and, and human labor multiplier of of that fossil fuel that that really expanded the possibility space of humanity. So around you know the 1700s, you start seeing that share of the wealth that is basically just gone towards subsistence start declining. And it got down to, by the 1800s, about 40% of your wealth. So going from 80 to 40%, you've had a doubling of your productivity. And now the majority of your country's wealth can actually go towards the future, your posterity, your culture, your, your innovations, your technology. Now you're not sitting around shivering to death and starving just about. You actually have free time to think. That was a huge contributor to civilization. But as time goes on, more efficiencies are discovered. And then really when oil is, start, is implemented, that productivity doubles again. And so taking these two items, which are proven to be so critical to human development, and then saying we can't use them anymore, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. It's just physically impossible to go back to where we were and then somehow f- come up with this new technology and engineering. Uh, it, it's it's going to be a transition, if anything. It can't be overnight. So I think that's one of his, his proof points that he argues for against this whole green stuff, that it's, it's a lot of it is hype. Um, it's not all nonsense, but it's it's just the physics of it are not understood very well. Um, and so I, I think that sums it up. But I, I think anybody who's curious about learning more of the details and the physics, I highly recommend uh, Mark P. Mills uh, from the Manhattan Institute. And Art Berman. Art Berman's pretty good, too. So what do we want to talk about next? Do we want to stay on copper or do you want to dive into something else? Um, well, we don't have to make it super long. Um, I'm sure this no, is let's a... keep going. This, okay. This is good. Let's yeah. Well, w- one of the things that I, I thought we'd do, um, obviously there's, there's a few other minerals. Um, we can kind of just do a quick summary of them. And then if you have any, anything in particular you want to drill down on, we can maybe do that. Um, at some point yeah, sure. I, I, I'd really like to, do a show on nuclear energy, but uranium is, is something that I think is very interesting. Um, and it's, you know, when, when the Ukraine crisis happened, we talked about this as to what was going to happen to global supply chains. I mean, we just got through COVID and everybody was like, Oh, you know, China, you know, controls too much and 
yeah, no, no shit. We've been talking about that for how long, but, um, you know, it took uh, people not being able to order their playstations or something to realize that we're dependent on a foreign nation. But the question was when Ukraine, uh, and Russia started fighting and all these sanctions start getting imposed and you know, trade, trade restrictions, uh, get thrown up. What's going to happen to the, the commodity supply chain and the minerals and the metals that come out of the ground in particular. And, um, you know, you, we talked about uranium. I think we talked about, uh, nickel. Nickel is, um, there's a lot of it in Russia. Um, Russia actually does have some, uh, well, I should say the Soviet union had a lot of uranium. Um, actually Kazakhstan is the, the biggest, uh, reserve country of uranium, but funnily enough, the, the biggest source of uranium, I think out of Russia, at least going to the United States was, um, depleted, not depleted, but, um, weapons uranium. <laughs> and there was a, a bombs for, uh, energy, uh, program that was set up, I think under the Clinton administration, it was basically just this, uh, attempt to, to get the warhead arsenal out of Russia down as much as possible. And, uh, a lot of that stuff was repurposed for, uh, for power plants. Um, well that, mm -hmm. that, that's gone away. Uh, so we don't have any more warheads, but that only made up, I think about 10 to 20% at most of the nuclear fleets consumption in the U S I think a lot of that stuff was coming from other places like uh, Canada and maybe Kazakhstan, but that that's, that's one that's kind of big. Um, Iron ore, iron's everywhere. I, I think what is notable, though, is that that is actually one that uh, Russia and Ukraine have a lot of. Um, but they, um, you know, and the Soviet Union was big on, you know, Stalin. His name was, you know, it's not his real name. It was uh, Stalin, German, it means steel. But I think in Russian, it's pretty similar. So he, he used to be the man of steel. So the Soviet Union was a lot about uh, steel making. Have you ever played Street Fighter Two? One of the one of the characters, um, he was Soviet, and the background uh, animation was a, a giant steel mill. It's kind of funny, but um, iron is everywhere, and I don't think you know we're we're going to run out of iron. Um, there's a ton of it in Australia. There's a ton of it in Brazil. The U.S. still has some up in uh, Minnesota, so I think we're good on that one. Um, well, actually, let's focus on uranium here for a second. Yeah. Because this is an interesting case study in, you know, killing an industry that actually uh, uses another industry's output and then seeing the industry that was producing that output then similarly decline. <clears throat> so the United States for decades was the leading uranium producer. Um, this is actually not a very, you know, um, I would say this is a pretty well-known fact that the United States was um, just a major producer of uranium after World War II. And a lot of that was centered in Arizona, Colorado, Wyoming, Nebraska, and to some extent around the Gulf Coast of Texas. But really it was I mean, Colorado, Nebraska, Wyoming, Arizona were really the core of the American uranium industry. And at one point in the 1980s, the United States actually produced um, almost 45 million pounds of U-308, which is sort of the easily refined uranium you can use for energy. And then it plummeted. It fell off a cliff. And then in 1990, 
it had fallen down to less than 10. Less than 10, more than halved. So what happened? The American nuclear energy industry almost went bankrupt. They stopped building new nuclear silos. They stopped building new nuclear plants. And the United States was entering arms treaties, if you remember this, limiting arm, nuclear arms production. So the uranium industry and the entire American nuclear industry basically had nothing to do. That has like a compounding effect. Suddenly, nobody wants to invest in uranium mining. So mining engineering and mining technology programs suffer because they're getting a piece of their funding, their fellowships for university from the mining sector itself. <clears throat> Research in the uranium mining goes down. Um, there's a know-how that's lost. So suddenly, nobody really wants uranium at all, especially because the American nuclear engineering uh, academic programs suffer tremendously. You know, what is the primary utilization of uranium? Well, it's for nuclear purposes. So if nobody's really doing nuclear energy in the United States anymore, there's not going to be a need for uranium. What little uranium the United States does use is almost entirely now coming from the foreign sector. I mean, less than 7%, 7% of the uranium that's being bought by domestic plants uh, is is actually mined here or refined here. Okay, can I make a, a possible counterpoint to why this sure. might not be a bad idea? Okay. It depends on where this stuff is coming from. Yeah, you could say that too about, you know, protecting our domestic environment at the expense of other countries. But what I was going to say was that provided that your suppliers are reliable, let's just say Canada, for example, there's probably a low risk of them boycotting us. Um, there is a strategic argument to be made for not utilizing your domestic supplies because in an emergency, you have more of it left over at home, right? So just the same thing you could say for oil. I mean, it's like, as long as you have a domestic industry that is still functioning, and we have by far a functioning oil yeah. industry at home because actually we're the biggest producer past Saudi Arabia now, which is insane because of fracking. But provided you have a, a sufficiently capable domestic industry, you can, you can ramp that up not with not too much difficulty, provided it hasn't shrunk to the point where, you know, we've lost almost everything like semiconductors and we're having to catch up back up again. But you can take from other countries what you, what you can basically pay for in good times. And then in bad times, well, nobody's trading currency is, you know, basically uh, kindling for a fireplace in a real crisis. But if you've got it right outside your yard, well, that was probably smart policy. And I think there there is probably some, I hope, I'm sure at some point the United States thought this way. I don't know if they do anymore. But I think at some level there is that strategic thinking that we're not going to deplete our domestic supply too much. I think that's not, not insane. Mm -hmm. As long as you don't screw up your domestic you know, talent base and 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 intellectual and somewhat industrial capabilities in the process the problem with globalization. One of the biggest problems is you forget how to do anything because you've, well, this you've is, given this it is away. Point. Yeah. This is, I think this is one of the biggest impediments to uh, why we can't get back into nuclear engineering. 
I think there's a legitimate argument. To I think you're right about that. Yeah. Literally I, I, don't right. know how yeah. to do this anymore. Yeah. The yeah. academic yeah. programs. Uh, I'm not the first to make this point, by the way, I'm not making up a, a novel point here. Some, if, if someone else finds this, finds this information elsewhere, trust me, I didn't, I didn't think this up. Uh, the academic programs for mining technology and for nuclear engineering in the United States have declined precipitously. In fact, I can give you an article I found, Workforce Trends in the U.S. Mining Industry. Doesn't that just sound really sexy and interesting? I know. But um, let's look at this for a minute. There's been a steady decline in the number of mining and mineral engineering programs at U.S. colleges and universities from a high of 25 in 1982 to 14 in 2014, which is when this study was conducted. Honestly, uh, there's also been a corresponding decline in U.S. faculty, roughly 120 in 1984 to less than 70 in 2014, and these programs as well as the shortage of qualified candidates to fill these f- faculty vacancies, federal funding of studies and research in mining has been drastically reduced, and the dissolution of the former Federal Bureau of Mines removed all funding from mining schools from the Mining and Mineral Resources Institutes Act of 1984. So, it's very provable, I think, that once you abandon an industry, people lose interest in helping that industry. And suddenly, all of the institutions that help kind of foster and keep industries going as a natural national security concern are also eroded. So what you wind up with is nobody is left to really do this. I, I'm 100% convinced that this is the one of the, if not the major reason why we will not get back into nuclear engineering for decades. There's simply not enough nuclear engineers anymore because... Dozens of top-tier universities cut or completely removed their nuclear engineering programs the last two decades. Like, yeah. nobody teaches this anymore. You literally have to come from Kazakhstan to have a knowledge of nuclear engineering. I'm not even well, kidding. Uh, right Chinese are, or are, Chinese, are, are right? le- leading right now. You have to right come now. from the, the depths of Central Asia to have a higher likelihood of knowing they nuclear engineering. They have 50, 50 reactors under construction right now in China, and I think right. we're, we're still struggling to, to finish the one that we have in Georgia. And you were right about you know their uranium stockpile that – so more than half of what – not stockpile, but imports. More than half of what we get for uranium is either Canadian or Australian. Yeah. Um, very low likelihood of, as you said, there being a problem with the Canadians. I think we could uh, decapitate the leadership with one strike in a week in the <laughs> suburbs outside Toronto. I don't uh, really think uh, it would be uh, tough. Uh, Ottawa, actually. But yeah. Well, nobody lives near Ottawa. They all live in Toronto. Oh, really? So, okay. Yeah, it's like the New York City. I mean, like, but well, that's even their more capital. So. That's their capital. Yeah. I know Ottawa is the capital, okay. but Toronto is where the power of Canada, the Maple Kingdom, yeah. really lives in, right. in Toronto. Right, right. I mean, you know, we could knock that place over in a week and then strip mine the shit out of it for the rest of its existence. Like, it wouldn't be hard. It's a little silly that we're importing uranium from Australia all the way across the Pacific Ocean in a diagonal pattern. Well, I mean, it might be cheaper. That would be an interesting study. 
if it actually is cheaper. See, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's actually done that and released it to the public. Is it actually cheaper? I would imagine because there is a good there is a good argument to be made. There's a good argument to be made that the United States throughout the Cold War strategically sabotaged itself in some key areas to enrich allies. Oh no, no question it did that just to yeah. get support for the the, right. the U.S. military leadership. You know, so is it actually cheaper? Was this done to basically subsidize Australia's economy? Australia had a very, very difficult time in the 70s and 80s. This is well known. Australia, the Australian economy was on the verge of total collapse at one point. Yeah, before China kind of exploded. Right. And, and so is this, you know, was the sudden, I mean, dramatic collapse in the 80s of American uranium mining, for example, and iron ore mining? Was this strictly done to boost Australia, boost Canada? Was this part of a strategic undertaking? Is it actually cheaper? It might actually not be cheaper. Who knows? But this is, it's sort of, an, when you're dealing with these like critical minerals and critical commodities, it's often not even just the cost that underlies, you know, what, where you actually end up sourcing it from. There's a litany of other reasons why you might want to source something from somewhere. It's not all business. No, so you're right. It, it, it raises, uh, I mean, well, we, we were sort of half halfway reviewing, halfway making fun of Peter Zihan, but like one of the biggest talking points in his talks is, is like mineral resources, geological right. reserves of, of things like uranium. Uh, he talks about oil and gas a lot too, but all of this stuff is a big talking point of his, and he's all about geopolitics. And why do those go together? Well, when you have these massively strategic reserves of stuff that nobody else has, it's a pretty, I mean, it doesn't take a genius. So thankfully politicians are smart enough to figure this one out. It doesn't take a genius to realize that if you're sitting on the only source of something that gives you a little bit of leverage internationally. So I think that's, partly why minerals and and natural resources are used as um, chess pieces, just like Russia has done that many times with Europe when it comes to natural gas supplies. They've cut off Ukraine multiple times of their natural gas. And, uh, you know, stuff like that can easily be understood to translate to other minerals as well. So this uh, some of this research on uranium mining goes even further. I, mean, I thought it was really interesting. So uh, there's a good argument, too, that unlike copper, which has been around for hundreds of years, there's been thousands of use cases for copper. Everyone's always needed it. Um, you know, copper production in prehistory is even well documented now. Um, uranium is a relatively new thing that people want. Um, it's only been in the last 120, 130 years when people even figured out what you could do with this weird glowing rock. <clears throat> so I think for the record, it doesn't glow unless you have a, a Geiger counter in front of it, but it's not the visible spectrum that we're detecting neutron decay. That was a Simpsons reference, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, Whatever. yeah, there you go. Level. That, that's uh, Hollywood, Hollywood science for you. So, people only recently figured out what to do with this, and it, you know, uranium quickly gets 
enmeshed into the Cold War. It, it's not a thing that you naturally need because there's not really that many use cases for it. You know, there's like weapons and then there's a very specific kind of energy production. There might be one or two other sort of very niche use cases. You can That's use. pretty much it, man. But it's pretty much it. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's weapons and energy. Uh, a depleted uranium is and, you know, a weapon, and basically. A very, very, and a very peculiar type of energy production that is enormously expensive to, to sort of build out and utilize. So, you know, which is the nuclear engineering industry. Well, it is now. So, it doesn't have to be. If we had a streamlined process, it probably even if it when, But even when it's streamlined, even when it's streamlined and, and you remove the graft and the, you know, the, the tape, the, all, the, all tape, the insane yeah. regulatory fear mongering after Three Mile Island, like, you know, it, it was it was still a big undertaking to make a new nuclear plant. It's not like a cheap thing. It, no, you're right. I mean, the costs are up challenge. front. It's, it's challenging. But... It, it takes thousands of people, mm-hmm. builders, engineers, architects, safety right. analysts. Like it's it's not a, not an easy thing to do. And actually, really like, highly skilled construction workers. You're talking about yes. like highly precise welds, really skillful crane operators to pick up the pressure vessels and just the containment domes yeah. and whatever the, else they're putting uh, in there. We don't even have like the crane operators to do this stuff. Believe it or not, it's it's that hard. To build You're these hiring the day laborers who you know slap together plywood in the Florida suburbs to do this kind of thing. <laughs> like you know, they're, you know, I have some guy whose last name is probably Donaldson or something like that to, to do this kind of work. Um, so the entire uranium industry, funnily enough, was basically like government subsidized its entire existence, sponsored, subsidized. So. At one point, the United States was governing, or the United States government was offering a ten-year price guarantee for specific kinds of uranium ore. You paid out a ten thousand dollars discovery and production bonus for each new source of supply. Um, so that was about ninety-five thousand dollars in today's dollars. So this basically was like government-subsidized strip mining of the Western United States. And uh, then the United States had like a strategic uranium reserve, the same way we have a strategic petroleum reserve. But they produce so much, and the U.S. government subsidized so much that we actually ran out of space to put it all. They couldn't build new storage facilities for this stuff fast enough, so then they stopped. Um, and they were barring importing uh, foreign uranium until the, until the mid-'70s. Uh, and then they slowly allowed it to trickle in. But there were studies conducted by the Commerce Department in the late 80s and very recently under the Trump administration that came to the same conclusion that as soon as we allowed importing of uranium supplies from overseas, it basically was the first and heaviest domino to fall that it triggered the collapse of the american uranium industry literally within five years of allowing people to import we hit our peak and then it declined precipitously was this intentional again was this to help the aussies you know was this to help the maple people who knows Uh, there was another problem in that the united states was banning imports because who was the major producer of uranium outside of canada australia the united states in the Cold War of uranium supplies, Soviet Union. So the United States was really not particularly interested in allowing the Soviet Union 
to have some kind of major stake in uranium supplies abroad, but certainly not in the United States. But now, we're importing double-digit percentages of uranium from Russia and from Kazakhstan, uh, almost 30% of what we have is imported from these two countries. So it's an interesting role reversal, and it was probably another one of those things that was done intentionally in the post-Cold War, where, okay... Oh, yeah. They, they were trying you know, to, to get Russia under the umbrella yeah, how do we the how do we prevent Russia from totally collapsing, but how do we gouge them and kind of get them into our sphere? Right. Same with the Kazakhs. Uh, well... Will agree to buy some of their uranium, and they'll refine it for us at a dirt cheap price, no questions asked, no environmental regulations, and that's it. And that's kind of been the relationship for for for, for decades now, really. Um, but this has allowed the Russians to actually, as I think as you were pointing out earlier, to become major players in the global uranium market. Because even if the United States is no longer sort of a big utilize, mm-hmm. you know, has a big utilization of uranium for nuclear engineering, lots of other countries do. Lots of other countries have active nuclear plants. Are much more in- interested in pursuing that. And, and prior prior to the uh, invasion of Ukraine, uh, Russia actually had a very internationally, you could say, competitive nuclear in, uh, engineering industry. Uh, Rus- mm-hmm. Rusatom, I think, is the company um, that was internationally being uh, hired as consultants and primary uh, civil engineers, basically, on the construction of power plants throughout the developing world. And I, I can't remember exactly which countries, but I do recall they were getting a lot of bids um, because they w- what they're a Russia today. You could basically say it's a corporatist economy. The, the government works pretty closely with sort of national champion corporations like Gazprom, obviously, but this extends to other areas of the economy as well. And the nuclear energy industry is one of their more competitive uh, capabilities after the Soviet Union fell apart. Steel, they're okay. Um, nickel, you know, mining and, and processing is actually one of their, a lot of heavy industry stuff, basically uh, weapons and, as well, and things like that. Um, and Kremlin works pretty closely with the oligarchs who run these companies to work towards national goals. And so nuclear energy was, was one of their, their big exports, at least prior to the, the boycotts and sanctions were put on them. And I think that is sort of in contrast to the United States, which has basically worked to cripple its own nuclear energy industry. The uh, general electric used to be one of the primary builders of nuclear power plants uh, around the world. And I think the Fukushima power plants in Japan that got flooded when the tsunami hit in 2011 were general electric uh, light water reactors. And I think general electric sold its division or Westinghouse did at least. And, and like sold it to, um, Hitachi, uh, another Japanese company. So they've, a lot of the American companies have ceded ground in this, in this space by contrast with some other players. Yeah. I think that, you know, the, the golden age is over, you know, the uranium, the domestic uranium mining is dead. You have to import it. And my guess is that it's more expensive. It's just simply more expensive. I think that's probably what it boils down to. And 
So that that era where you could easily source domestic from a domestic mine in Nebraska, ship it, you know, thousand miles over to you know your industrial heartland onto on the east coast is over this is that's gone because that's gone nobody majored in nuclear engineering in college for 30 years so nobody knows how to do this stuff except for some old timers who are I, met, I met one once in college really and i was being glib and i was like oh are you doing fusion or fission he's like yeah just fission um but uh <laughs> i only met one i met a lot of other types of engineers uh and he sort of stood out to me because i was like really like you're studying that okay cool but it was i remember actually talking to a professor who was a professor of petroleum engineering and he he told me i mean i didn't talk to a nuclear engineering professor but i talked to a petroleum engineering professor and he told me that nobody wants to do this anymore like you know, this is a dying field and that was years ago, but, uh, and it's not really true, but he was right in the sense that the new talent, you know, they want to be Larry page and Mark Zuckerberg. They want to study electrical engineering or even (laughs) if they do that, they're probably going to do computer science, which is a lot easier. But, um, the engineering quote unquote talent has gone into software much away from the the hardware side of things and to the chagrin of, you know, manufacturing companies, obviously, but, um, you know, students are not stupid. They're looking at where the money is. And if these industries are falling apart, they're not going to study it. And then that sort of perpetuates the decline, which it's, it's sort of sad, right? Like, you, you kind of need both to work well. And then if it's one is also isn't harder, working, it's just yeah. harder to get stuff done. I mean, you can, yeah. you can embark on a greenfield software engineering project at a major company or even a smaller one that's just focusing on very niche industry and actually see your accomplishments come to fruition with by, by, by the three month mark. Like you have a beta, you have something to show for it. You know, what, what does three months get you in nuclear engineering? Oh, you finally got like that one piece of data you needed for like the U.S. regulatory body to then take two years to get back to you on. Yeah, yeah. And, or, that, or, that gets you an extension on your application. Or even when you're doing something, <laughs> it's a tremendously time-intensive process to build this stuff or do maintenance. Like, can you? I mean, you, people should look at the maintenance routines that have to go on at the still active. U.S. nuclear power plants. I mean, they can go on for weeks just doing a maintenance routine. Well, this is extremely. Let, let's keep in mind that we want them to not rush. Of course, I, no, no, no. I, I'm not saying they should, but there is there is a level here of okay. I want my work to matter, and I want to see results quickly. The fastest way to do that is to go into software. Oh yeah, no. It, unless you're working in go fast and break stuff does unless not apply you're working in, in nuclear power yeah, plants. Yeah, you're working for the airline industry, or you're working for maybe some branches of the government, or for health, or for some branches of healthcare. You will generally see very quick results with the project you're working on. You will get something done, and you will have something to show for it. And you're not going to be hindered. And it's not going to be slow, and it's not going to be challenging and costly, because it's not. I mean, most of it's not even real, what you're doing. 
there's a very real difference. I think that's the other big problem here. It's probably why people have also stopped going into mining. I mean, mining is a tremendously lengthy process. Mines operate for decades at a time. Well, yeah, and it's sort of like the entrepreneur startup culture has caught in right, the, yeah. the zeitgeist and the attention of young people. Um, it's difficult to imagine yourself, one, competing with China, which has a frigging government and, and a billion plus people competing against you in heavy industry. But it's just hard to imagine raising the capital that you need to get a, a startup off the ground versus like freaking coding something on your laptop and then making a pitch deck. It's so much easier to do software from just a probability standpoint of like success and, and iteration and all that stuff versus, uh, okay, I'm going to open a mine. <laughs> so much money and trucks and people and acreage do you need Versus a frigging laptop. I mean, it's, it's there's no comparison. It's hard. It is hard to do yeah. stuff like that, and especially when when the country fights you on it. You know, it's one thing in China to do this stuff because the government is is sort of endorsing it. I mean, here it's like you got all these stupid congresswomen who are frowning and complaining and and sending lawyers after you. You can't you can't do any of this stuff. So that's another reason why it's gone overseas. You know, our own stu stupidity of our government is is blocking it at every turn. So, yeah, it doesn't happen <laughs> because of that. <laughs> and so we're left with, you know, uh, I, I think it was the famous Peter Thiel uh, lament. You know, uh, I, when I grew up, I, I thought we were going to have flying cars and all we got was 140 characters. No surprise. So what, what mineral are we shooting on next? What's the next one down? Well, I, I don't think we should go down the whole periodic table. How about, <laughs> how about, how about we do this? <laughs> um, I just had a few more notes. Um, you know, you can say no to this. Um, I'm just going to go through the section. So do you want to at all discuss any of the uh, economics of it? I mean, we kind of did, but uh, we, we talked about, I, I would say if anybody's interested in the trading and the financial aspects of it, check out our show. Um, the world for sale. It was based on a book by that title that talked about the commodity trading companies and houses. Um, in particular, you know, you'd want to focus on commodities that are traded on places like the London metals exchange and NYMEX, which I think is owned by the CME group now, but, uh, stuff like that. Um, if you're interested in the finance aspects of this, um, I kind of mentioned some of the tech involved in this stuff. Uh, I do, I do think it's kind of cool though. If you, uh, if anybody wants to check out like a mega mine, like compare like, okay. So if you ask somebody like, what does a mine look like? They probably have like some Hollywood rendition in their mind of like what a mine is. Um, that's old school mining. Like they're, they're probably, imagining some guy with Chinaman like with pickaxes. Yeah. Or like a miner's hat, you know, with a little lantern <laughs> on it. And the guy, some little <laughs> tiny guy, some dwarven shaped oh, man, yeah. he's got a little pickaxe on his shoulder that used to how, how they used to mine for coal. And it was really, that was subsurface mining where they would dig I don't tunnels. Know, man. Some of the, some of the coal mining in the United States is still like that. I mean, it's, no, it is, it's but really it's, it's heavily, heavily automated now, but back in yeah. the day it used to be picks and shovels. And, dangerous i mean these things would cave in and, and just you know the, the whole canary in the coal mine 
was a, was a thing because there would be noxious fumes coming out of these places. And there's also an issue of ventilation. Even if it wasn't poisonous gas, uh, you hit a sulfur vein or something, you would consume all the oxygen and everybody was like, you know, working pretty hard. And so you would just asphyxiate. So the canary, if it, if it died, uh, I guess they just, they were weaker species. They, they couldn't sustain themselves or something. You would be like, I, we need to get the hell out of here. So that, that's the sort of like old school way, very dangerous by the way. Um, and frankly, I'm happy to see that go away because there are far superior methods that don't put men's lives at risk. And that's basically strip mining. Now you can imagine the environmentalists having a cow when they hear, Oh, that's better than subsurface mining. Well, yeah, you go do the mining then. You, you find out how hard it is and how dangerous it is. So there's a reason people, they call it, you know, open pit mining now, but they, they basically, they, they we're not going to build tunnels. We're just going to excavate. <laughs> we're just going to dig everything up and then we'll, we'll create a, a concentric circle of, of roads that go down this hole. And then we'll, we'll have a bunch of machinery in the bottom loading stuff onto giant mining trucks that are going to drive up that road. And then we'll, we'll keep, expanding the size of the circle way safer. And frankly, at this point, way more efficient because you have extraction technologies that can, that can process that ore pretty quickly. And you don't have to dig all these stupid little tunnels and, and figure out which way am I going to go now? Um, you just rip it all out and then you, you put some trees and you're done. Now I'm glossing over the sort of complexities of the environmental remediation. Of course, it's much more involved than that. But I think in terms of the trade-off between losing hundreds of men or more in harsh working conditions versus just cutting the stuff out of the ground. I'll go with the second one all day long. But, um, what I was going to say was that's even like the, the middle tier, uh, industrial process where you have these huge trucks. And by the way, mining trucks are gigantic. Like they, they, they're so big that they have to usually assemble them on site or, have specialty convoys along highways because they're so big. Like the size of a mining truck's wheel is so big that sometimes they're taller than houses. Okay. And then you're, you're, you're moving tons of ore. So that's why they're so big. And then the, the shovels that pick them up, they're actually old school. Um, I forget what they're called, but they're, they're not excavators. So when you, when you drive, you know, somewhere and you see like a, a road construction project, they're, and they're running these, um, these sort of articulating frame, uh, arms. Those are excavators and they have big tank treads underneath them. Those are, those are tiny compared to the, the stuff they use in mines. The mines, they're, they're front shovel buckets and they're designed to basically scoop up everything at the, the flat level of the vehicle up. And then they have a, a door on the bottom of the bucket opens up and then dumps into a, a mining truck and then they go back and dig it again. That's what steam shovels used to look like. That was the old front shovel design. Problem with them is they're not very nimble. So you can't do trench work very well. You basically can't go underneath the, the level of the vehicle. Uh, and then they, they're just kind of clumsy, relatively speaking. But if you're going to do a dig of everything, it's actually better. And so that's what they use in mines and they're really big. And the size of the buckets are probably, you could fit a car or something like that inside of them. And then they dump that into a big mining truck. It drives off. But what's crazy now is that they have these uh, bucket wheel excavators. And that's what you see in places like um, 
Tagebo uh, Garzweiler, I think it is in German, but it's this huge coal mine that has basically consumed like half the Ruhr, <laughs> Ruhr region in Germany where they, they send these bucket wheel excavators uh, and then have to move like towns out of the way because these things are so gigantic. And these are in different countries, by the way, they're, they're all over the world, but typically in coal mining regions where there's these huge coal seams, they have these pieces of equipment called um, bucket wheel excavators. And instead of having a arm that has one bucket on it, it is a giant wheel. It's a ring of like death that has just, it's like a, it's like a Ferris wheel full of buckets and it just, it's constantly turning and it, it like, it's like a giant, um, I don't know. It's like a chainsaw for the earth and it scoops everything up on a giant wheel. And then there's a huge conveyor belt system hooked up to it. And these things are massive. They're like, I don't know, 20 stories tall and they're usually uh, electrically operated. Um, and so they have to have electrical infrastructure running out to these things. And in addition to the conveyor belt systems. So it probably takes one dude to run it. It's, it's, it's a simple job. I and mean, you're basically just, you, you hold down a button and the thing like runs and then you have to pivot it to the next part of the, the, the surface that you're, you're cutting. But to set up this infrastructure, that's a huge team. And so this only really makes sense when you know you're going to cut everything. And they, they are in places like Germany where they stupidly shut down their nuclear power plants. And now they're basically just ripping the earth apart to burn coal when they don't have any more Russian gas. So it's interesting how all this stuff works together. But um, I just wanted to mention that image, bucket wheel excavator. Look that one up if nobody's ever seen a picture. That's what mines look like today. There's no more of these like pickaxe guys, you know, going into the middle of the earth and pulling up a tiny shovel full. You have giant maws of uh, rock death that are consuming this stuff probably at a thousand times faster per person than uh, the old school way. So pretty impressive. The miracle of hydraulics. Well, I don't even know if they're hydraulic. I mean, the the sort of free range stuff are hydraulics, but this just might be, you know, like some kind of gearbox that's running the whole thing. I don't know, but uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a Ferris wheel of mining. It's a pretty cool machine. Um, and, and since we're we're coming up on Halloween, do you have any spooky stories about mines? Do you ever? Uh, ever get lost in one as a kid or go go to an old mining town you know i have been to some old mining towns um i was in a mining town in uh the western united states not too long ago and uh went into this old old silver mine very old silver mine and there wasn't too much that was spooky about it. Uh, so we're doing a tour and, um, they have the whole thing lit up and you get, you know, they have, uh, lights kind of trailing along, but the, uh, there's this old guy who was like a miner or he was a miner. He, he was a miner for decades. And then he's kind of touring the older mines in the area. There's still some active ones nearby. And, uh, uh, he has a switch for all the lights. So there's a whole tour of us and, and deep. Now we're like, you know, we're like, you know, 200 feet deep into this mine, just walked down and along these old rail lines. And 
he's like, okay, I'm going to turn out the lights. And he said, okay, when I was a kid, we would eventually, we would initially prospect some of these mines. We would start charting them and we wouldn't always have power. Power was less reliable decades ago sometimes. And, uh, you couldn't lose power in the mine, but you were expected to continue working. So it kills the power. And he has this little, uh, almost like kerosene lantern, but it's almost like a flashlight. So it has like you know, sort of a small flame that's condensed behind a piece of glass and it acts like a flashlight. Kills the power, pitch black, turns on this flashlight. And this is an old guy, really old guy. And uh, I could have sworn there was sort of a, skull shape that manifested in the shadows around his face as he was talking to us. And just prior to that, he was telling us how many guys had died in this mine and had died in mines nearby, had been lit on fire, had drowned, had cracked their head open on something, rocks falling down. And in that moment, mine was just pitch black except for this little light on his face as he's talking to us. And you're just hearing little creaks and cracks and water dropping. You get realize you're surrounded in the sweat, the blood, tears of hundreds, thousands of miners who've passed through this place over time. And it's all along the kind of chalky white soggy floor with these old abandoned rusting rails and this old mining equipment that's slowly just sort of receding into the soil becoming part of the mine it's a very ominous eerie feeling this is what mining used to be and every time you'd step into a mine after somebody died the blood or the tears the sweat whatever came out of them as they died it's forever trapped in that mind. Trapped in the soil, trapped in the dirt, trapped in the rock. It's always there. Every mine in America is haunted. I guarantee you there is not one that isn't. I highly recommend you don't go to these mines. Ever since this mine visit of mine, I've been a changed man. I've been hearing voices. I've been seeing things, hearing pickaxes in the distance. Strange mutterings in Oriental languages from the dead slave miners who are no longer with us. Every mine in America is haunted. Don't go in them. They might talk about haunted houses. They might talk about a random house in Japan with a little pale Asian girl. Compares nothing to the massive graveyards of American mines. 